On this graduate Sunday, it is important that we are talking about truth or tradition. We have landed upon in our study of the Gospel of Mark a section of Scripture that I believe uniquely applies today. Now, you may not think that when we first read it, but I trust by the time we are done that you will. Tradition is defined as customs and beliefs that are passed from one generation to another. And so our graduates have lived in their homes for a number of years now, and their parents have passed on traditions, and their church has passed on traditions to them, and they will now in the days ahead have to decide whether they are going to follow these traditions or to cast them aside. They are going to have to decide if these are truths that have been taught them or merely traditions that can be left alone. We have traditions in virtually every aspect of life. They are certainly prevalent in sports. I mean, who could imagine a UT football game without the vol walk or without running through the power tee or hearing it's football time in Tennessee? Well, I could imagine all of those things. I, I could do away with all of that, but most of you could not. Most of you would be very angry and disappointed if for some reason the university decided to stop some of those traditions. Even though they have nothing to do with the outcome of the game, they are important to you because they are traditions. There are certainly cultural traditions as well. Things we do in this part of the country that are not done in other parts of the country or things we do in this part of the world that are not done in other parts of the of the world. And oftentimes we don't even think about them because they are so much a part of our lives that we simply do them. When we travel north, it boggles our minds that they do not serve sweet tea. I mean, it's just a part of the southern culture. We think everyone has that until we go outside of our southern states and discover that not everybody does. Weddings and funerals are different in different parts of our country. We eat different foods than other parts of our country eat. It's easy to summarize the southern food culture. It is simply we fry everything. Uh, All kinds of aspects of life are different when you move around the world. And we don't think about it. They simply go hand in hand with who we are and what we do. And therefore, we give little thought to why we do the things that we do and why we think the way that we think until we travel somewhere and discover that not everybody thinks and acts like we do. Of course, we have religious traditions too, things that we have done because we've always done them and therefore they must be right, or so we think. Whether it is what we wear on Sunday morning or what we don't wear, or what we do for recreation throughout the week, or especially on Sunday. Perhaps it's the kind of music that we sing in a worship service, or the time a worship service begins. Maybe it's the version of the Bible we read from, or a program or practice that we can't imagine the church existing without, and therefore we dare not change it. Again, the list is endless, and it's why we as Baptists are often said to say, we've always done it that way. I mean, that's our answer. Why do you do this? Well, because we always have. But here's the problem, and let me say first of all that there is nothing wrong with tradition. I am not advocating that we throw out tradition. I am not criticizing tradition. The problem is 
when we elevate tradition to the level of truth. When we have a hard time distinguishing between that which is true, that is, that which is biblical, and that which is merely a tradition, those things we do because we've been taught to do them or raised to do them or, or we simply like. And when we confuse these two things, we get into the territory of idolatry. And when we impose our traditions on other people as commands, we are doubly dangerous when it comes to idolatry. Raising our traditions to the level of Scripture and even beyond the level of Scripture means that we have moved over into idolatrous territory. Religious tradition is defined as a doctrine or practice believed to have divine authority, though not in Scripture. Whether you are a graduate or a grandparent or whether you are not yet a graduate or you are well past being a grandparent or you are anywhere in between, this is a vital topic this morning as we consider truth or tradition. Because if we cannot distinguish between these two things, we will discover that we will be in trouble. Let's look at Mark chapter 7. There's three sections again to this text, and I'm going to read them individually so that they are fresh on our minds when we discuss that section. So keep your Bibles open. We will start with the first eight verses as we see traditions observed. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, obviously that's Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So we're going to start with tradition observed as long as we understand that the tradition that Jesus is dealing with in this text is not one that we struggle with. This is not something that crosses our plates on a regular basis. And that's why I said when you first hear this text, you might think to yourself, how in the world is this going to apply? But I think what we'll see is that the underlying issues are the same. Though the specific tradition is going to change, the underlying issues are the same. We are reintroduced to the Pharisees and the scribes, a couple of groups of men that we have not seen since Mark chapter 3. These are the religious leaders of the day. They are laymen, and yet they are religious leaders, and they are the men who know the law. They interpret the law, they obey the law, and they impose the law on others. That is, they expect and demand that other people will follow the law even as they do. And it is important for us to understand how they would have been viewed in the first century because our view of them is very negative. Because they are often seen in conflict with Jesus, we tend to have a negative opinion of them. But that is not how they were viewed in the first century. These are the men who were the leaders. They are not bad guys in the culture nor in the synagogue. 
It's actually the exact opposite. They were model citizens who were admired for their religious commitment and their moral lives. These are the faithful church members of the first century. These are the men who would serve anytime something was needed. These are the men who gave every time the offering plate was passed. And certainly these are the men who obeyed the law, which means those of us who are raised in church are more susceptible to this problem of tradition versus truth than others. In this case, they've come north, they are from Jerusalem, and they've made the journey 90 miles north. Jesus is still in the Galilean section of his ministry, and they have come north to encounter Jesus. They have come to examine his ministry. They are not there to learn from him. They have no doubt heard the reports of what Jesus is doing. They have heard of his teaching, his unorthodox teaching, and his miraculous intervention in the lives of people, and they have come to check it out for themselves and make sure that what he is doing coincides with what they believe. And, of course, they immediately find something that is wrong, at least in their mind. And they don't mind calling attention to it. Have you ever met someone, or do you know someone, who is always that person who doesn't mind pointing out to someone else what they are doing wrong and why? That's what we find here in the Pharisees and scribes. As soon as they come, they notice something, and they immediately point it out. And so they asked Jesus why his disciples are eating with unwashed hands. And although the question is directed toward uh, the disciples, that is, they're the ones that are violating the law, we know that the real challenge is between them and Jesus. Because the rest of the dialogue doesn't even mention the disciples. And a first century rabbi was responsible for the actions of his disciples. And ultimately we'll see that the issue is not really about hands at all. But it's about hearts, whether Jesus is going to submit to the oral law and teach his disciples to do likewise. Now, you understand, I trust, that this is not a matter of hygiene. These religious leaders are not concerned that germs might be passed during the welcome time in the synagogue. And if those germs are passed during the welcome time, therefore the attendance at the synagogue next week will decline because people will be homesick. That is not what this is about at all. This is about ritual and ceremonial cleanliness and purity, which they took very seriously. So how do we know whether this is truth, that is a biblical command, or whether this is tradition, simply something that they have followed and now they are imposing on everyone else? Well, the Old Testament law prescribed that a priest was, in fact, to wash his hands. But it never went beyond that and said that the ordinary people were to do so unless they came in contact with a bodily discharge or a dead body. But the religious leaders, as we've talked about in the past, took the written law of God and expanded upon it into what became known as the oral law. In fact, they actually wrote down this oral law some 200 years later in A.D. 220. They wrote down all of these oral laws that have been circulating for decades And it became known as the Mishnah. The idea was to express the intent of the written law. That is, you have these laws, but in order to apply them to everyday life, we've got to expand upon them. And so the intent, at least in theory, was good to try to help people understand what these laws meant and apply them to daily life. But it took on a far greater meaning than that. In fact, it became uh, so burdensome on the people that they were imposed upon these religious obligations that they couldn't possibly follow it. 
So what these religious leaders are really asking Jesus is why he allows his followers to ignore the traditions that they hold so dear. And this is certainly not the first time that we have encountered this. We've already seen Jesus challenge the idea of cleanliness by touching a leper, something no one was ever to do. That is why lepers were separated from everybody else. We've seen it in the fact that Jesus is willing to have dinner with tax collectors and sinners, something the Pharisees would never have done. We've seen it in the fact that Jesus allowed himself to be touched by a woman who had a bleeding issue for 12 years, and Jesus touched a dead body, raising the young girl to life. All of these things were against the oral law and would have contaminated somebody, but Jesus disregarded all of that. We've also seen that he disregarded their rules for fasting, and he trampled on the Sabbath by intentionally healing on the Sabbath in order to instigate a dialogue. All of this was done to demonstrate that these laws were not valid, nor did they make one right with God. And that is the crucial element. You cannot be right with God because you wash your hands in the prescribed manner before you eat. These external observances were not the pathway to a right and intimate relationship with God. So Jesus calls them out by quoting Isaiah the prophet. Again, now remember that these men were serious about their faith. They did not have a lack lack of commitment. They were not filled with apathy. These men were committed and serious, and yet, what does Jesus call them? He calls them hypocrites. Now, the word hypocrite comes from the theater. It originally meant a person who was an actor, someone who played a part on a stage. And therefore, it came to refer to someone who was a pretender, someone without sincerity, someone who said one thing and did another. Or in our day and age, perhaps we can compare it to our image on social media and the reality of who we really are in life. And because those two things are so vastly different, We can be called hypocrites. By the way, that's still a word that people use of us. And when I say us, I mean those of us who come to church. And people still say, well, the reason I don't come to church is because it's a bunch of hypocrites down there. And in one sense, they're exactly right. We are all hypocrites because we don't live up to the standard that we profess to believe. That's because we're all sinners. And we can't possibly live up to that standard. So in one sense, we are all hypocrites. They are right about that. But in another sense, that is still not a valid excuse for coming or not coming to church. God has always been more interested in the heart. Now, that does not mean that the external is not important. That's not what I'm trying to say. We can certainly go to the opposite extreme here and say, well, if it's an issue of the heart, and then it doesn't matter what we do. We can live any way we want to. And that's something called antinomianism. That's the Greek word for law with the negative prefix attached to it, meaning against the law. So it doesn't matter what we do because it's a matter of the heart. That's an error on one side, but what we're dealing with in this text is an error on the other side, and that is what we call legalism. That's believing that obedience to the law will make one right with God or save you. Now, we can go all the way back and find the famous story of David being anointed as king to see that the heart was important. You remember that story, I hope. The prophet has come to David's house, and he intends to anoint the next king. David's father gets all of the the sons together, except for David. He doesn't think enough of David to even invite him to this event. He's still out in the field keeping the sheep. And when the prophet shows up, he sees Eliab, 
one of David's older brothers, and he says to himself, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. That is, this guy looks like the next king. This must be the one. But God answered, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. When the disciples were choosing someone to replace Judas, they prayed, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen. So the focus on the heart is nothing new. It has simply been replaced by strict adherence to the law. And that merely resulted in worthless worship. Can you imagine attending church all of your life, serving any time the opportunity arises, giving every time the plate is passed, trying your best to be obedient to everything you know to do, and yet to hear Jesus say, They worship me in vain. Vain is your worship. It is worthless because it does not flow from the heart. That's how serious this issue is of raising tradition to the level of Scripture and really, in essence, surpassing surpassing the level of Scripture. Because in holding on so tightly to their own traditions, they had actually abandoned the commands of God. This is so subtle. And so deceptive, and therefore it is very dangerous. It is why we must make sure and think scripturally that what we do and what we practice is according to Scripture, especially in the church. But again, that doesn't mean that we can't have tradition. It simply means that we must understand the distinction. That we must know what is scriptural truth for all of us to follow And what is tradition, either because it's what we've always done or because it's what we want to do, and we don't raise tradition to the level of truth and impose that on everyone else, condemning them for not following our own traditions. Well, let's look at the second section. It's found in verses 9 through 13 as we find not only traditions observed, but now traditions are elevated, elevated to the level of Scripture or even beyond. Mark chapter 7 Verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. In verses 9 through 13, Jesus gives another example of a tradition that they have brought into, bought into, that is actually opposed to scriptural command. And the summary statement in verse 13 makes it clear that this is just one example. There are many others he could have used as well. Now, this example is a bit strange to us because of the cultural divide. So here is the brief explanation. Obviously, God commanded children to honor their parents. This is found in the Ten Commandments. This is the fifth of the Ten Commandments. And this honoring of parents would have involved taking care of elderly parents, something some of you know quite well because you've done it in the past, you're doing it now, or you know it is on the horizon for you to do in the very near future. And this was such a serious issue that a violation of it, according to Exodus 21 and verse 17, was worthy of death. 
Now, aren't we glad that Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf? Otherwise, many of us wouldn't be here. And yes, some of these graduates would not have graduated because they have dishonored their parents at times and they would have been put to death. But we don't do that anymore. But that does bring up the question, why do we obey some of the Old Testament laws and not others? In fact, that is one of the charges hurled at Christians, especially when we are very strong against something that the culture has decided is now okay. And when we try to argue against the culture and say, well, this is what the Bible says, the answer we are often given is that, well, you're just, you're just using the laws you want and disregarding the other laws. After all, you don't send the women out of the house every month. You don't make sure that your clothing is not mixed with cloth and linen. And you certainly don't put your children to death when they disobey you. Well, what the world doesn't understand and what many believers struggle with is the different aspects of the Old Testament law. Some of it was cultural, meaning that it was specifically for the Israelites. That is, there are some Old Testament laws that were just for Israel to separate them from the surrounding peoples and nations. It, were, it was laws designed to show that they were God's people and therefore they were different. The food laws can fall into this category. That is why we eat pork and the Jews don't. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's on the menu for the graduate lunch today. And so we don't follow those Old Testament laws because those were specific for the Israelites. Other parts of the law were specific for their religion and are either no longer valid or have been fulfilled in Christ. That's why we don't offer sacrifices. We don't gather on a Sunday morning and put animals to death as a blood sacrifice because we understand that all of those Old Testament laws about sacrifices prefigured the one sacrifice who was to come, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, who has now once for all time sacrificed himself for us. Therefore, we don't do that anymore. And then there is the moral law, which is timeless and applicable for all. It is something like those in the Ten Commandments, so that murder and adultery are still wrong because they're part of the moral law. And distinguishing between these is difficult and leads to much confusion. So we do still strive to fulfill the command to honor our parents, but we do not uh, follow through with the prescribed penalty because we are free in Christ. He has paid the penalty for us, and we don't live under a theocracy as the Israelites did. Now, not that that brief explanation has answered all of your questions, but let's return to the specific tradition Jesus referenced. Corbin is a Hebrew word which Mark defines for us as meaning given to God. And this is an indication that Mark is not writing to Jews. He is writing to Gentile believers because he has to explain what this word means. Well, what this is like in our culture would be something like deferred giving. In other words, here, here's what you could do if you wanted to. I'm not telling you to do this, but you could do this. You could put in your will that upon your death, all of your assets and all of your resources go to me. I mean, that would be a perfectly acceptable thing to do. It's a deferred gift. You get to use all of those gifts while you're alive. You can use them any way you want. You can profit from them. But upon your death, they all go to me. Now, you know I'm joking, but you might do that to your kids or you might do that for a charity or even the church. It's a deferred gift. You commit that gift to something or someone when you die, but in the meantime, it's yours to use. That's sort of what was going on here. That is, they were declaring that their resources were given to God. 
And therefore, they were saying, I cannot help my parents because these resources are committed to God. And then they were going to the scribes and Pharisees to verify this, and they were saying, yes, you have made a legitimate vow. You have guaranteed your resources are to go to God or the temple. Therefore, they cannot be used for other purposes, nor can this vow be revoked. And as a result, they were legally, in a sense, giving their money to God so that they could not use it for their parents, which was the biblical command. And therefore, they were elevating tradition above the biblical commands. It's amazing how we can make even our own disobedience appear spiritual. I mean, it reminds me of Saul. You remember that story from the Old Testament? Saul was told by God through the prophet to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites, the people and their livestock. And I know that sounds harsh to us, but it was a judgment against the Amalekites for the way the Amalekites had treated the Israelites. And God was using uh, the army of the Israelites to bring his judgment against the Amalekites. And so Saul goes and does that, but he doesn't utterly destroy them. He actually keeps the king and he keeps some of the livestock. And then when the prophet shows up, Saul is very proud about his obedience and he explains to the prophet all that he's done and how obedient he has been. And the prophet says, if you've been so obedient, why do I hear sheep and oxen in the background? Because all of those were supposed to have died. And he says, oh, I kept some of those for the worship of God. He tries to spiritualize his own disobedience and we are often very good at that. And again, this is just one example. They were doing many other things that he could have brought up, elevating tradition above the place of Scripture in many other ways. But the pressing question for us is, do we do the same? And if so, in what ways? And the answer is yes, we do the same thing. More often than we admit, and in many more ways than we can imagine. I suppose it can best be summarized by saying it occurs when we elevate our convictions. That is, we have a belief. A conviction is a deeply held belief. And we ought to have those. I am not criticizing convictions. But when we have convictions and we elevate them to commands, and as a result, we believe that every other Christian ought to follow my convictions, and we criticize them for not following my convictions, we are doing the same thing as the Pharisees here. Again, a conviction is not a command. I'm not talking about biblical commands here. Those are for all believers to follow. For example, this is purely an example. The Bible is very clear that sex is to be confined to the marriage relationship. Everything else is outside of God's design and outside of His will. It does not matter that our culture has long embraced many other things and said that the Bible's viewpoint on that is no longer significant or contemporary. That does not give us the right to say, well, my conviction is anything goes, because that's a biblical command. But we can go to the other side of the equation as well. One person might be convicted that they ought not to go to a certain place or, or do a certain thing, And granted, these convictions might flow from, in their minds, biblical principles, but other Christians might come to different conclusions. And this is when we must be careful not to raise our convictions or our traditions to a biblical standard for everyone else to follow. Now listen, I know I am being vague, and I am being vague on purpose. Because I do not want to cite this example or that example and have you go away from here thinking that the sermon was about this or about that, when in reality it's not about an example, it's about the thinking that goes behind it. I want us to be able to think through why we do what we do and why we think the way we think 
and to be able to distinguish between that which is truth, that is, what does the Bible say, and that which is tradition, that is, these are the things we do because we were taught this, or because we've always done this, or because we like this, and know the difference between a truth that is for all of us and a tradition that is uh, for some, but not to be imposed on others. That's why I'm trying to give us a broader picture here rather than just one specific example. So let's finish up with our third section, truth disclosed, beginning in verse 14. And this is intricately connected to what we've just talked about. Verse 14, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all of these things come from within and they defile a person. These verses are connected to what we've already talked about and in fact they get more uh, closer to the real issue. Now I do need to make reference to the fact that in what I just read there was no verse 16. I don't know if you caught that or not, but verse 16 was not there. This is another one of those textual variants. That is, some manuscripts have verse 16, but the better and older ones do not. And therefore, many of our translations leave it out, though you might find it in a footnote. Now, this is a good example because whether it's here or not doesn't change the text. This is what it says if it is to be there. It simply says, if anyone, who has, if anyone has ears, let him hear. Well, we know that's said elsewhere. So there's nothing wrong with that statement. It's just a matter of whether it belongs here. As we've seen before, Jesus explains privately to his disciples what he has declared publicly to the crowds. Man is not defiled because he eats with unwashed hands or because of any other external action or attitude. The problem with man is much deeper than that. It is an internal problem. It is an issue of the heart. Now, the heart for us is the place of emotions and sentimentality. That's why we have that southern saying, bless your heart. It's a sentimental statement. That's not the way the heart was used in the first century. In the first century, the heart was, was not sentimental and emotionalism, but it was the seat of the rational, intellectual, decision-making elements of the person, more like what we would call today the mind. It was the center of who a person was, both in personality and will. And Jesus makes it very clear here that this is the deeper issue. Man has a heart problem, not primarily a behavioral problem and not primarily an attitudinal problem. Now, granted, we do have behavioral problems. And he gives us six sins here that prove that. Granted, we have attitudinal problems. And he gives us six attitudes following those six uh, actions that show we do have problems, all of that in those closing verses. So you could look at those, those lists and you could say, yes, I struggle with that one or I have a problem with this one or really I, I'm working on that one. 
But that's not the point of this text. The point of this text is not to take those 12 actions or attitudes and say, well, I need to be better at that or I need to work harder on that one. The point is to show that all of those things flow from a problem of the heart. These are symptoms the disease is found in the heart because all of us have a bad heart. Jeremiah makes it very clear. In fact, he makes it plainer than we care to admit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So man has a heart problem that is evidenced by the actions and the attitudes. Now, it is much easier to follow a list of rules. That's why so much of religion is made up of rules. It is so much easier to check off, I did not do that, I did that, and think well of ourselves because we've avoided certain things and done other things. It's much harder to examine our hearts and find that we are lacking there. But the truth of the matter is, following the rules is never good enough because we can never follow them completely. And that is why the gospel is good news, because it tells us that one has followed the rules on our behalf, that one has kept the law because we could not, that Jesus lived a sinless life, which is impossible for us to do, and that's why he could die a substitutionary death, because he had no sin to pay for himself. And that is why we celebrate on Easter that he is risen from the dead, conquering both sin and death and the grave on our behalf. So keeping the rules or following traditions can never save and it can never satisfy. But again, don't hear me wrong here. I am not saying don't follow the rules. I am not saying disregard tradition. I am simply saying don't think that is what saves you. The gospel is good news because through it, Jesus changes hearts. And it is the heart that is the core of the problem. Now, our graduates are going to be confronted by a world that does not believe like their parents have taught them or their church has taught them. In fact, in all likelihood, they have already found this to be true. And no matter what age we might be, we still face this dilemma in a world that is no longer oriented toward Christianity. Why do we believe what we believe? Is it because the Bible says it and we still believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? And by the way, that too is under attack, significantly so, and not just in our culture. It is under attack in many, many churches where we have simply concluded, well, the Bible might say that, but we're in a, we're in a much different age now. We're in a contemporary society, and so we can disregard the Word of God. Our graduates and all of us are confronted with these arguments on a regular basis. So do we believe what we believe because the Bible teaches it or because we've simply been taught it by our family or our church or it's our tradition? We must be able to discern the difference between truth and tradition. To be able to read and study Scripture and decide for ourselves is something of biblical truth or a personal preference. And this text shows us that such discernment is not a minor issue but ultimately gets to the very core of the gospel. Because if we elevate tradition to the place of truth, we destroy truth and undermine Scripture in the process. But worse yet, we could find ourselves alongside the Pharisees, hearing Jesus say, in spite of our attendance, in spite of our service, in spite of our giving, in spite of our obedience, hearing Jesus say, in vain do you worship me. 
That is a scary thought. And it is why we must place our trust in the truth, not tradition. And why we must remember that Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes unto the Father except by me. Let's pray.